welcome to Gamers on the Go, a podcast dedicated solely to those games you can take with you. I'm your host, Chase Kennecke, uh, and we've got a bit of a different show today. We're going to be talking about LCD games and other uh, handheld games. You might remember uh, Tiger Electronics as, as maybe one of the bigger ones. And we're going to be talking to two people here. Uh, I'm talking to Jason Scott of the Internet Archive, and I'm also talking to Ryan Holtz of the MAME development team that has been working with the Internet Archive to emulate these LCD games and, and other handheld games uh, to be playable uh, in your browser uh, if you want a shot of nostalgia of games that you've played uh, from a very long time ago. <laughs> Um, it's a, it's a fun couple of interviews. They're, they're split up in parts one and two. And at first we'll be talking to Jason Scott. So I will throw to myself uh, as we talk to Jason. Hello, Jason. How are, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic today. <laughs> well, that is great to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. We're here to talk about the, the internet archive and specifically the handheld history collection that you guys have uh, recently put together. Uh, first, though, I'd like to ask kind of what is the Internet Archive and, and what are you guys, uh, what's the goal of the Internet Archive? What are you guys doing over there? Sure. Um, so the Internet Archive was founded in 1996 by Brewster Kale, who was a dot-com kind of guy who had done all sorts of information processing businesses. He had actually worked on a computer in the 1980s called the Thinking Machine, and he found himself with a pretty good chunk of coin, and he thought about what did he want to do with his life. And he realized that since he was very young, he wanted to bring back the Library of Alexandria, which was more famous for burning down than anything else. And he wanted to bring some sort of universal library up. And his businesses had all been around uh, dealing with internet information and the web information. And as a result, he found himself with uh, SCADs, well, at the time, SCADs of information, what we would now think of as a hard drive that I bought at Best Buy. <laughs> and he said, let's try to work to put all of this online. And so he built something called the Wayback Machine. And the Wayback Machine was a way to look at old websites. And in the last 20 years, it's become one of the crown jewels of the internet. Sure. Uh, a lot of people have heard of it. And um, besides the Wayback Machine and its ability to look backwards, he also has been working with a lot of people for all range of what we would think of as a you know, kind of standard library situation, uh, having old books, movies, music, uh, making them available to the maximum amount of people. And there is a slogan that we have, uh, universal access to all knowledge. And the idea being that as much as we can and has as as much as we can and as realistically as we can uh, bring all of this information to the world uh, in, in, in whatever means we can do. So like that's the generalized purpose of the Internet Archive. And then somewhere around 2011, he hired a maniac, me, and <laughs> said, see what you can do. And, and by the way, uh, while we're doing pretty good with the books, uh, a lot of people can read our millions of books, and we're doing good with you know movies and video and everything else, we really didn't do enough on software. And uh, maybe you could do something with software. And I was somebody who had been doing 
you know, both software collecting and history and all sorts of things all my life. And so for me, I approached it as, well, let's do what we do elsewhere in the archive. That is, the rest of the archive, you can pull a book up and read it, and you can pull up music and listen to it, and obviously you can go to websites and look at them going back, and I thought, we should do that with software. And that nightmarish question <laughs> turned out to take something like two or three years with some incredibly talented volunteers and collaborators, and at the core of it was basically taking the infamous MAME emulator system uh, and making it work in a browser using, at first, JavaScript and most recently WebAssembly. So basically porting it into a browser component so that you could run an emulator in a browser. And we have other emulator families. Uh, we have other mechanisms, but the MAME emulator is the core of what we're doing. And, you know, the MAME emulator itself has been growing in all sorts of amazing directions. And we have a system where we can take one of their emulation systems, say something for um, the Macintosh or a Spectrum or an Amiga, really anything that you can think of and make it run inside of a browser window. And where we can, we have. Uh, so, so basically for the last few years, we've been having a lot of success bringing back arcade machines and consoles and everything else. And you basically start up a program in your browser, and then it loads in a disk image, a floppy, uh, maybe a cassette tape image, whatever it needs, and it starts playing that old program in the browser. And that's, you know, when I first started doing it, I said, I hope that this becomes the most boring thing in the world. And people <laughs> were confused. And I said, no, no, I want it that you, you know, when you boot up uh, uh, something like a video. You know, you tell your friend, look at this funny cat video on YouTube. Your friend doesn't spend two minutes marveling at the fact that the video is working in his browser and that he can't believe, you know, like, oh, I just can scrub back and forth and look at it again. What is this? This is amazing. Like, you don't think of that. You're like, ah, the cat's pretty funny. And I wanted that for software. I wanted to be able to say, hey, buddy, you know, look at this amazing blackjack program someone made in 1992. And 30 seconds later, your friend is like, yeah, pretty cool blackjack program. Neat right. use of uh, graphics. Like, the you know, systems, we get... the systems should be the second nature part. And that will allow the programs themselves, the software, to be the stars. Yeah, it should not be a miracle. It should be a tool. And I like to think we've kind of hit that. Although there apparently is still juice in, <laughs> hey, the Internet Archive is now providing access to blank, whatever blank may be. Uh, and so over time, as you know, this group of volunteers and myself have added more and more platforms, you might say, people who, people who have a relationship in some way to that platform come running and say, did you just say this is available? And we watch them flip out and tell their friends and make their kids play it for 20 seconds until the kid's begging to stop. You know, like, it becomes a part of their lives and it becomes another referenceable material. So my hope is in another, you know, few years, it'll be like, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was nice. I, I want to play the old thing. Good. Sure. Nice. 
Well, until that time, hey, Jason, did you know that the Internet Archive has LCD handheld games? Oh, my God. Did you know that you could actually use a speak and spell in a browser window? Did you know you could play Tamagotchi oh in a browser God. window? Did you know that you could bring up a glorified calculator that pretends to play football? Uh, how about the fact that you can play some of the worst games ever made? instantly oh yes. so that's you know that should be the slogan in some of these cases it should be truly terrible instant um absolutely and and the thing is that it turns out that handheld games which uh were such a, a variety and strangeness from the 70s up to you know like the mid 90s mid 2000s it turns out like they are a vital component of a lot of people's personal history. And it was just the secret part of them that they didn't really have any occasion to bring up. Now they have that occasion, and, and I've been seeing it. I mean, I definitely have seen other cases with earlier platforms where someone will say, oh, when I was young, I used to play this game all the time, and now I could show it to my son, and he was so happy. And we always get the heartwarming stories that somebody made a thing, but of course they don't have a way for people to easily check out their thing. Right. And they'll say, hey, everybody, I made a game in 1983 for the Atari 800. Look at it. It's right here. And everyone goes, yeah, good job, Joe. Uh, that was 30 years ago. But um, the handheld games are going through that same feeling. I, I remember having a couple in my life. I played a, a, a football game when I was very young. I played Speak and Spell when I was very young. And I uh, uh, lusted after these Coleco plastic looks like little video game games. Like I saw pictures of them. And I wouldn't be surprised for a lot of people that they would see these. They were very, very uh, overpriced. And say, I want that someday. Like it would become part of their dream list. And then they never got it. And now they go, oh, it's my time. I just had to wait 30 years. <laughs> and uh, it just falls into my lap. Right. And I so, mean, that, yeah. that when I was uh, telling some people that I was have, making this episode, you would, you would find people who would always say, oh, yeah, Tiger Electronics? Yeah, I remember. And the, the interesting thing is, unlike a Game Boy, because we all had... A shared experience with the Game Boy. The buttons were the way they were. The batteries went in the way they did. The screen always looked the same. And then we had the individual games that we played. But there was a shared experience there. And with the Tiger Electronics thing, the experience is so disparate. In I had a 1987 Tiger Electronics pinball game that that is I don't believe it's on the Internet Archives list yet, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, but like that game was life to me. And then another person can be over there and say, well, I played Battletoads and that was mine. And the buttons were completely different and everything was different. The shells were even completely different shaped. And yet we all still have that fondness, have that nostalgia when you hear Tiger Electronics or talk about these LCD handheld games. But, but really the things that we remember are all completely different. And I think that's really fascinating for this. I think that there is something that kind of comes into the digital divide. Uh, you know, when I'm playing Xbox now, it's possible to go and play 
these emulated Xbox first generation live games and you actually can work with original Xboxes and you, you know 360s I think but the point is is that you can go in and there's people who are playing it because that's all they have right like that's their game like, they're not on the new game that's 60 bucks that's not happening <laughs> and it's a shock to somebody who's able to afford you know anything they want when they find out you know some people literally just have to make do and i definitely had a few people who told me stories where the older brother got the game boy and the younger brother got the tiger electronics handheld mm. and that's their experience like to them they got the little thing the brother got the good thing and maybe one day he would get the good thing but not anytime soon so during that important you know impression period their memories are playing the lcd screen and this is a part of their life and What's nice about putting it all up as fast as we can and putting as much of it up and not playing too many games with, um, literally playing games with uh, this being worth saving versus not worth saving is that we very slowly and then very quickly figure out it's kind of all worth saving to some extent because it represents a chunk of human history. I mean... You know, obviously, whenever you look at any sort of game or computer preservation, there are plenty of people who can play the game of, well, what about this part of human history? Are you saying that's not worth it? And it's like, no, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, yeah, we're going to save handhelds. Should we not save, you know, the, the, the stories of pioneer women? Should we not save the stories of, you know, exploration in the Spanish peninsula? No, of course we should save that too. It's just, it turns out that um, the relatively easy digital aspect, you know, being able to recreate a lot of it, if not all of it digitally, gives us an opportunity to bring it all back and let people, you know, kind of, make their own narrative, whether they are studying something they were never part of, or they are revisiting something that turns out to be a vital part of their lives. I mean, I had a few go by in this where I go, wait a minute, I lived this? <laughs> like, I definitely lived this. I was, I remember this. And, you know, I had not remembered it up to that point. I'm sure people are doing that. So that's part of why we do what we do is um, believing that it's not just books and it's not just video that represents parts of people li people's lives, but the fact that we have all of this electronic effluvia that has kind of passed through our hands and we are uh, not going to be able to talk about what makes us what we are unless we have access to it. And so, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see where things land in another few months as this thing spreads around. But I, my, my current plan, uh, which I'm sure is one of your questions, my current plan is every time there's a new version of MAME and we compile it and make it run, I'm going to add whatever they've added uh, and whatever works uh, in the browser. So for these handheld games, which they are now doing, I mean, the speed rate, um, uh, there's, there, uh, you know... Um, uh, Ryan will talk, I'm sure, about, you know, the process. But what I have seen is sometimes in less than a day, they can go from it's a piece of plastic to it's a working game. 
that's crazy. Uh, you know, there's so many other programs that you're talking about years and years of refinement. And the fact that you can just absorb something like this into a browser window to me is a miracle. I'm, I'm not quite tired of the miracle. I want the miracle to be dull, but even I feel like I'm doing some sort of um, avatar-like uh, ceremony and just everyone's <laughs> chanting and then suddenly the, 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 the handheld goes into the sky and spins and becomes a digital form and we're like, oh. Um, That's a and, wonderful uh, dream. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I like to think of it. So how did um, how did the what is the origin of the handheld history collection though? Because because you talked about having these different things that we could save, but who who was out there saying okay, this is the part that we need to save? Did that come more from from your end uh, from the Internet Archive end saying hey, this might be a good thing, or was this the main team that said hey, by the way, we can do this? Would you guys be interested in having this happen? Or we're doing so this. I- do you want to get on board? Yeah, so unquestionably, what it was, was I, I, I follow Ryan on Twitter, and he had a whole bunch of uh, uh, handheld games that he was trying to buy at auction. And somebody was selling one, and he didn't know exactly how much it was going to be at the end, but he thought this collection of a few dozen handhelds was really worth getting, that it had a few unique pieces in it, and that something of this size doesn't come along, but what happens if the the, the, the bidding price you know spikes up into uh, a much higher realm than he could float? So he asked me and a few others, like, could we get people to maybe pledge a few bucks so that if he did have to run down that rabbit hole and, and, and go up with the numbers, could he back it up with people? And so in doing so, he had been talking about this is part of getting all of these because look at all the great work that the team is doing in making these go into MAME. I mean, uh, again, he'll have different takes. I am definitely an outsider to the MAME team. But one of the things that was really difficult was... um, what level of these are you going to emulate? And, and in fact, I'm not going to answer much more of that question. I'll leave it to him to talk about it. But there is a lingering question of, you know, it's one thing when you can take the output of a Pac-Man machine and say, well, it broadcasts out to this matrix of uh, pixels and we're going to make the pixels accurate. Um, but it becomes more difficult when 90% of the machine is plastic and switches and stuff moving around. Um, you know, to me, a really good example is take a licking from a chicken, which we have not put up yet. And the reason why is because its main component is a moving chicken doll. Right. Um, and so when you're playing this game, it's basically just playing tic-tac-toe and something else. And it's playing at the realm of a lot of tic-tac-toe toe games you know if you get this move first you're probably going to win if you're the computer but there's a chicken that moves at the top of the machine and that's a pretty vital part of the experience so how do you bring back the chicken that should be the title of my new (laughs) presentation my new thesis how do you bring the bringing the chicken back um but that's the thing and so i i chose at the moment not to put it up just because you don't get, you know, everything associated with it. 
by putting up just a picture of the, the readout. And there are other ones like that. And so that debate, you know, like, like the speak and spell, like, you know, work has been done to create artwork to, to emulate all the plastic, you know, or at least to look like the plastic. And then you're manipulating a small emulated portion of it, a, a line of text and a speaker. Um, but the rest of it is absolutely vital. Merlin, there's another good example. Merlin is like mostly plastic. It's not a very complicated thing. It's just a set of LEDs that blink. Uh, so, so how much of that are you going to just recreate in the browser, sorry, how much of that you're going to recreate in the the program, and, and therefore in the browser. I mean, otherwise, you know, are you being realistic? Can somebody in the future understand what they're interacting with to any given amount? I mean, this is this is a fundamental problem, and I love forcing it. I love that they are forcing it. They're saying, look, right now, all of this history exists and is in front of us and to some extent we can have it but what are we going to do in a century and what steps can we do now that people in a century will thank us for being able to make it available to them that's the fundamental i love that that's our fundamental problems and our these are great problems to have as opposed to there's no evidence of it. Nobody even knows it exists. There's no records. We saw it in the back of someone's photo once. We have no idea what it does or what it is, you know, and that happens more than you would think. Um, so, so that's kind of like the approach going on here. So, so my point of view is just merely that of trying to get the most people able to interact with emulation so that emulation will improve, have the standing and the foundation and the respect and the support that it needs uh, to be able to continue some very important work. Sure. So, so there are 60 entries uh, in the handheld history collection currently, correct? I think it's now 70, but okay. yeah, around that. <laughs> it's, it's grown even more. So... Uh, you you mentioned this a little bit in with the last question when you're talking about how uh, specifically the chicken game you're not going to put that up because you can't emulate the the uh, the really the differentiating factor for it yet anyway and uh, but I wonder when you have these sixty was there any sort of uh, qualification process you, you talked about not being able to necessarily save everything and it's not a zero sum game. But, but is there a situation in, in this situation where you picked some games and not the other ones because they had more historical significance? Or is the idea more, let's just get the ones we can now and we'll figure out the other ones later or once we get working copies of them? Because I'm sure that's one of the hardest parts of this is just finding usable copies of these handheld games to, to put onto the system. Sure. So... Um, one of the things that happens when I put up a new set of items, especially if it's quote unquote, a new platform, which this is sort of a new platform, let's call it a new class, is uh, I feel like people are going to wander in and the first thing they don't want is something that just 
flat out doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, it just doesn't work. It fails. It gives an error. It crashes. So obviously there's some quality control there. We play it and we say, does it even boot up? Then it's, does it run at a speed that doesn't freak out in a browser? Now, some browsers, it's going to click. It's going to be slow. It's going to be weird. People have a whole variety of machines. You can't lock down everybody's specs so for some people they are going to play these and go oh it's terrible it was slow it doesn't work and i'm like yeah your machine is 14 years old and you're running <laughs> windows 7 i'm sorry but um there are uh, a whole range of machines that they run pretty well in most browsers um most people are pretty used to it at this point so there were 211 things that MAME currently classifieds as handheld in their setup and their database and their constructions. So of those 211, what I would do is I would go for a chipset and I would say, does this chipset seem to run? Like if I run a program or a game that's, that's for that chipset, does it work? Oh, it works. Okay, let's just put up every one from that chipset that it has running. So that's kind of how I would start out. So there would be like, you know, oh, 14 of them run under this chipset. Oh, you know, 14 of these run under this chipset. So that helped. Um, then we get into the ones where it's acting weird or its output to me is not going to be informative. Like there's a chess game that doesn't have any chess pieces um, and I'm not running them. So there's, there didn't seem on initial blush to be a way to do it. Now, I say that, but sometimes what happens is people walk up to me and go, well, did you know about the artwork option? I'll be like, what? And they'll be like, yeah, set this to set this. To this, this, this. Now it prints. The, now it'll do a little ersatz version of, of the, the chessboard. And, you know, then it works. That happened too. Um, so there were a few where I just didn't know that there were additional options for doing a version. Um, then there were ones where, um, I just felt like it just didn't look right yet. Like it was so oddly constructed, uh, that I'm like, I don't know if anyone playing this would understand what was happening. Like I, I just in terms of like, I think it's confusing. And again, I might be missing an option or I might be missing where it's going or I didn't put the right entry in. So I put them to the side. So of the 211, you know, like 74 or 75 are up. And then I'll probably go back and revisit and say, okay, did I miss something? Uh, let's go add a few more. And of those chipsets, um, there's one that they've been adding a lot to, and that's what a lot of people think of as the Tiger handhelds, uh, the LCD mm -hmm. uh, games. That's like a certain chipset. So more come under that chipset, and then I'll just say, yeah, plug it in. It's great. But then you get into like, <laughs> like a really good example is Dark Tower, um, which is the Milton Bradley game that had um, uh, Orson Welles narrated. You know, there is a dark tower, <laughs> and it's a board game, and it had this electronic insane thing that you plugged in the middle of the board and as you played the game you pressed a button on the dark tower and it would make a decision about what was happening to you oh wow well it's it you know like they have it emulated like they have the 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 dark tower machine emulated they have some artwork so you can sort of see what it would have looked like 
But since you can't play multiplayer games on the archive unless you're all at the same keyboard, I just didn't put it up yet. Like right. I don't think putting the, that up would make sense. The practical application doesn't isn't there. Yeah, and I mean it's not a conspiracy. You know, I'm not like, oh, well, nobody needs to know about this. <laughs> it's just a matter of I think that a person who wanders into this is not going to be uh, amazed by it. Mm-hmm. Like you can certainly have people download the emulator and get these things running if they really care about it. But what I'm trying to do here is deal with a range of people for whom, uh, well, more and more I'm getting students who are assigned these. But, um, you know, where you go in and you're like, hmm, Tamagotchi, I remember that. That was important. I never really got one. And they boot it up and there's a Tamagotchi display. And one of the things they discover is how insane, like, they packed into the buttons, like, press this button twice to feed it and do this. And But they are experiencing a Tamagotchi, and it's not going to be the same as walking around with this thing in your pocket and then, you know, realizing that it, it needs to be fed and you have to give it stuff and presents to keep it happy and so on. Like, not everything is going to pop out from playing this, but... There's a at least the beginning of understanding a Tamagotchi as an experience. Um, I try not to be the gatekeeper if I can avoid it. I try not to be like, well, nobody's like, okay, you ask yourself some questions. And my questions tend to be things like, will this even run in this environment? Um, does this require something that a browser doesn't have? Uh, because there are some cases of that. Uh, but it's not questions like, is this good? Will people like this? Do I think this game is fun? There's a lot of not fun games on the archive. (laughs) There are a lot of games that should not be thought of as fun. Uh, they should be thought of as, well, I'm at the lake house and the other family left this in the living room. So I guess I'm playing this until the family goes out in the boat. Right, um, like back to know, my back to my 1987 Tiger Pinball game. That game's not good. It's not a good game of pinball. I there, I don't think there could be a good game of LCD pinball because that you're not going to get the physics. It's not going to feel right. But I love that game, <laughs> and yeah. despite its faults. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There are a whole range of things that are like works of art. And I think it's been funny. People have been taking like the SVG output of the LCD screen that they create for this emulator, and they've been pl- using plotters and putting them into graphic programs and turning them into wallpapers. Like that's interesting. <laughs> uh, there's an artistry to being told that you can only have one screen and no sprite can be on top of another. And how do you deal with that? And I think there's a major study in that as just a work of art. But being able to make a you know, rough approximation of a platformer or a racing game by using this does not ultimately triumph over the other accessible racing and platform games of the exact same era. This wasn't like, uh, you know, we made it out of wood and then later we made it out of polyfill carbonate because we had better materials. This would be like we had the ability to do a bulletproof vest 
and use a barrel with straps at the same time. I mean, it's, it's absolutely these two pieces of technology that coexisted. And I actually, I think somebody uh, coming in like in 40 years would be like, really? You could choose between these two and people <laughs> chose the second one? And it was like, well, back then, you know, 20 bucks was 20 bucks. Um, you know, you got three kids. How are you going to make all three happy? Right. Um, and and so, just because these things were a trifle doesn't mean that they are, like you said, that doesn't mean they're not worth keeping and, right. and, and archiving in some way. But but yeah, there is there is a, a bit of curation to this, like any museum or, or library would have. And sometimes if, if the thing is not able to run for people or it's not able to, to be used in the right context, then it's not doing its job of of being something that people can can go back to. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, if we look over uh, these programs, they are examples of thinking and uh, society and uh, what we do in certain situations. And of course, of certain properties being exploited, like there's a Michael Jordan basketball game and a Space Jam game and a Back to the Future game and so on. Um, these are all lessons that this will teach uh, and all pieces of information to pass along. Um, I don't want to be the person who made some weird judgment that this shouldn't be here. I mean, I just think there's a certain family of it that right now we can't show. Right. Like it's either too much for any browser. Like. Uh, we've wanted to emulate the Atari Jaguar for some time, and it just runs too slow in the system we use in the browser. It just It's too much. Uh, it just doesn't function. But the minute it worked, oh, you bet I'd be putting up Tempest 2000. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not me saying, oh, Jaguar is beneath us. It's me saying, okay, this just doesn't work. And I knew that they had emulated Simon, and I knew they had emulated Merlin, and it was only this year purely by Ryan mentioning it and talking about all the work they'd been doing that I, you know, kind of revisited it and said, whoa, they have been working hard. And uh, they have been working hard and they continue to work hard. I mean, they're taking so many elements seriously. And it's, it's a tough business. I mean, like I said, Ryan will have his own insight into it. But it's tough. Uh, you know, you have this problem that there's a segment of the population who doesn't think emulation as a process is legitimate like they just don't even think it should exist okay well fine okay i mean what argument am i going to have against that uh believe that all you want i'm going to keep going and then there's people who think that emulation needs to hit certain internal markers or it's not valid whatever it needs this and this and this and this and if it doesn't have it it's not real and it's like okay and then you have a whole layer where people are like well you're emulating an aspect of the experience, but you failed to emulate this aspect. And I'm like, well, we'll work on it. Like, we'll work on it. You can't, you, you can't sit there. I mean, I am, I mean, if, if, if perfect is the enemy of done had a Pope, I would be that Pope. And I absolutely prefer to put a bunch of stuff up and then somebody says, well, I noticed that it doesn't implement this. And it's like, well, here's your big chance <laughs> to step on the stage, 
take the cane and dance out what's needed because otherwise nobody would have heard of it, you know? Uh, and here's the thing. So much of life is full of this, right? Where uh, I, I think I tweeted this a, a, a few days ago and I said, every awesome thing you see has behind it ridiculous, unneeded drama between two people who are basically 100% in agreement. <laughs> and and there's just so much of that everywhere. There's, there's arguments within the freelance scanning community. There's arguments within, you know, how to save certain kinds of VHS tapes and how to save certain kinds of old CDs and what processes you'll use. Like, all of this. But everybody who's doing it loves history and wants to bring it uh, and make it available in the contemporary world as easy and as complete as possible, realistically. Like, they all want that. Mm -hmm. And then they argue over process. And so in emulation, there's a lot of argument about, well, is it cycle perfect? And, and are you hitting this? And what about support for this relatively obscure item or this re really obscure feature? Like, they'll produce a feature for, I mean, like, like, like as a, nonsense example like the atari 800 has two cartridge slots and i think that everything used the left cartridge slot and like four things used the right cartridge slot in its entire history like nobody ended up using the right cartridge slot so there's multiple ways you can approach the right cartridge slot emulation and some people might just do a hack if they thought they needed to and others would say, nope, got to act like it was there for anything because who <laughs> knows, people might do a right cartridge slot in the future and you want them to have the most accurate emulation of that. And it's like, okay, like, okay. But there's a lot of heat there. In terms of the handhelds, you know, what represents an emulatable experience? Uh, you know, I, I have seen some reaction to the handhelds to varying degrees from various people. Um, you know, there's one person who's like, well, you know, it's not real unless I can have that glowing uh, LED light in my eyes. And I'm like, okay, I uh, get it. Um, this is a picture of a fire. It's not a fire. Um, but still, aren't you happy that we have a picture of a fire? Uh, instead of no evidence fire ever existed. Uh, here's a picture of a building. You can't walk through it, but at least you can see it. Um, they might recreate the room of a building that once existed, and you can stand in it. It's not perfect. It won't sound like it used to or anything. But, you know, like, like when you walk into any museum, there's a million questions like this. How do I present an old stone tablet? How do I have an old costume? How are we going to keep this around for another thousand years when it was designed to rot out in like six months? Like, how do we do Like, they're living this every day. If you take a backstage tour of museums, it is stunning. Like, the amount of work they're doing and the amount of tools to make this work. And it's no different with emulation. I mean, there's an argument about this or that to whether or not we should be doing it or something but you know everybody cares they truly like there's no emulator author who is doing this going well screw this stuff like right. they all believe in it they all have arguments about process but they don't have arguments about meaning you don't work on an emulator because you hate the past <laughs> i mean come on so 
that's you know that that's that's me as an outsider though. I'm just like, well, come on, come on, let's let's just go as fast as we can. Let's get the most people on board. Let's make a million people happy, and uh, from those million people, you'll get the 500 people you need to support us going into the generations to come. Right. Well, I I know your time is uh, running short here. I do have a couple more questions for you. One sure. of them is that I know that when you put this out, when you put out 60 and now 70 games, it's it's fantastic and people love it. And then I can see your Twitter and it's people going, well, what about that game? Well, what about this game? And and I know I just did it to you where I was talking about my 1987 Tiger pinball game. Uh, well, I mean, that's just, I mean, that nostalgia fog followed by an immediate demand for better service and, <laughs> and better heat. I totally get that. Right. I get it. And and that's only because we uh, have grown up in a very, very intense consumer culture. And socially, we are uh, encouraged to demand more, better, cheaper, quicker, and be annoyed when we are not serviced to what level we are in deserve of. I get it. And so uh, I put up these things and then people go, well, why not this? And I know you and I, you, you mentioned this before the thing. So why no game and watch, Jason? And the answer is Nintendo. Yes. Um, Nintendo, As it normally is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that there are like a variety of companies who are super aggressive in this space. And the Internet Archive is not interested in uh, fighting anyone at this juncture. So when they come to us and they say like, um, excuse me, uh, we believe this, uh, we generally respect it and we take it down. Like we, we know that many of them replace what we have online with absolutely nothing. You know, no, you know, it's one thing if somebody uploads a, a piece of work and they come to us and say, well, they shouldn't have uploaded that. And we go like, oh, you're right. And we take it down. Because they have it, right. and it's available through them. But then there's a whole family of things where someone just goes, on principle, we only want things up that we believe in. Right, and, to, to protect uh, their brand or, or to because of lawyer problems that if you don't, if you don't attack this one, you can't attack that one. And I, and yeah. I totally understand that. And Nintendo, for it, to its credit... Uh, well, maybe people wouldn't credit it too much, but they have their own ways of curating and, and showing off games of the past through things like Virtual Console or even through Game & Watch stuff. Nothing super recent, but there are Game & Watch gallery collections that they have made on on the Game Boy and Game Boy Advance. Those aren't perfect recreations. They've always changed them to have Mario characters in them instead of Mr. Game & Watch. But even something to the point of playing uh, a Super Smash Brothers game and having the the game and watch backgrounds there and having mr game and watch as a character they they have their own way of presenting their past and and i'm sure because it's nintendo they want to present it in a very nintendo-like way instead of just having the the raw stuff out there for people to see yeah i mean my experience is that uh there are a set of companies um which i have dealt with over the years, uh, some of them I know on a first name basis, um, who are very strongly of the opinion of we don't want anything of ours that we can control up on the internet. Like they just <laughs> believe that. And whether or not it's right or wrong, um, you know, you have to respect to some extent their wishes. Like I think some of them are being very self-destructive to their history, but 
that's my opinion. I'm not really in any position to tell them. So, um, you know, there are a variety of handhelds that Nintendo made. And so Nintendo has said, nope, you will not emulate Nintendo items. And we said, fine. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a couple other companies like that. Um, some of them only care about one or two properties. You'll find that they only care about their cash cow. Um, but they exist. They believe they should do it. And um, it's just no, there's no, there's no getting around that. So, so that's where we are now. And, and I get people who are like, <laughs> I get people who are like, cowards! And I'm almost <laughs> like, okay, all right, excellent, excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm looking to my left and I'm looking to my right. I don't see you next to me uh, yeah. on this. You know, I hope you enjoy things up there in the second mezzanine <laughs> telling me how to do things. I guess I'll just have to enjoy my, my Game & Watch Octopus game that I bought off eBay. <laughs> I'll, I'll have I mean, to deal with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm very happy to cause the conversation. And I'm very happy that we, we've brought it to a head in terms of like, here is an example of this. And, and, and you're able to make this run. And it's just a matter of doing this command line. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to see things advance more. And it's made more people aware of how arbitrary some of these rules are. But there are companies like Nintendo that will literally believe that 50 years isn't enough time for a game to fall into being part of, in any way, the public space. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and as long as people are aware of that. And, you know, I mean, I will tell you that museums have the same problem. It's just that they do it on a back-end insular way. They will not display certain things because certain donating bodies will say, yeah, we make too much money uh, uh, putting it on tour. So you don't get to take it from your set and put up a version of it. Right. And in response, we will do this, this, and this for you. I mean, it happens. It's just not quite so black and white obvious in a way that plays in the public space. But it does exist, sure. you know? And, and I've said that to museums before. Some of these museums will do these just utterly ridiculous, uh, um, I'm, I'll make one up, but like, you know, like the science of this TV show. And you go to the science museum and it's great. You get to experience the science of this TV show. But what you also don't know is that company is also going to audit everything that that science museum has up and tell them that certain things shouldn't be there. Right. And that's the side. That's the dark side. <laughs> well, I work in advertising, so I, I am used to the dark side of those kinds of things. Um, now, you, now, you do have, you, I mean, you put it out on Twitter that, hey, these are out there. You, you wrote a, a blog post for the Internet Archive to, to introduce this. And you do have people who are saying, well, what about this game? What about this game? What about that game? And... Uh, and when you when you do that, when people have done that, you have offered a solution to those people. Now I don't know if uh, if you're still uh, have have that available to those people, but uh, you have put out, hey, you could write me at, at your email address and tell me what game you have or 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 I'm looking for, and we can try to help you out in some way. I know people have said I would be happy to donate games. Uh, would you like to put that out there so any of the listeners can can know how to contact you about that? Sure. Um, if you go to Text Files on Twitter, uh, T-E-X-T-F-I-L-E-S, and contact me. Now, 
there is a pile of stuff that they are processing and all I'm doing is recognizing that my bringing this to millions more is going to cause this backlog of people saying maybe I can help <laughs> sure and so I'm willing to take on like yeah I'll take I, I did this with floppy disks I've done it with other materials so if you message me uh, I can help you find out if what you have is unique and if it is I even have a place you can mail it and I'll ensure that it gets to the people who are doing the work uh, when they're ready for it which right. unfortunately may not be months or years I have no idea what the backlog is currently but um, I'm more than happy to put I, mean, I don't want to bring all this attention everybody says can I help and then suddenly there's this huge lean on the MAME team just because of what I've done so um, you know, message me at text files. I'm more than happy to hold things for the future. Sure. And, and you've also said that because of the way the process works, and hopefully I'll get to talk to Ryan a, a little bit more about this, uh, that these games would probably and almost actually assuredly are not going to be returned to someone after they donate them. Yeah, they're dead. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, we're not going to turn that chicken nugget back into a chicken. Um, <laughs> But it's going to be a, a, a chicken nugget that lasts forever. And, and I, 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 I sense a kind of poetry, and, and, and I have to go uh, on my little uh, my jaunt in another minute or two. But there is something very beautiful and poetic about the fact that you have this part of your life, this plastic part of your life, and you've kept it for all these years. And you send it to us, and it's destroyed. But then it becomes the thing that thousands play for the rest of time. So it becomes the canonical version of what it represents. So there's something poetic in that. There's a nice sentiment um, there, absolutely. Yeah, there's a sentiment there. And and if you weren't using it um, at all, and it, I mean, I definitely never, never destroy something that you love and make a part of your daily life in some sort of, you know, like you, you, most things don't need that from you. But if it's a case of, it's a distant memory, it makes you happy and smile when you look at it, then yeah, this makes total sense. Now you've donated it in a way that thousands of kids will play it, thousands of adults will play it, and, and they'll experience it through your particular one. Like what it had will now be out in the world. So I like that. I like that a lot. That is very nice. So uh, you did mention your Twitter, at Text Files. Uh, yep. But then how can these thousands and thousands of people go and play these games? Sure. Uh, just go to archive.org slash details slash, and this is all one word, handheld history. Uh, that is the collection name, and that has the ever-growing collection of plastic handhelds. Sounds great. And I will make sure that that is also part of our show notes. So you can just click on that link there, and I'll even make sure that is posted out on our Twitter. Jason, I want to thank you for, for coming on and talking to me about this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Absolute joy. All right, and that was Jason Scott of the Internet Archive. I want to thank him for coming on again. That was a, a great interview. Now we're going to be talking to Ryan Holtz. He is part of the MAME development team that uh, is, is part of the group that's actually getting these games emulated and, and playable on your computer right now. So we will throw it over again to myself as I talk to Ryan. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, I'm doing just fine. Uh, we've, we have talked to Jason from the Internet Archive at this point as we're, as we're having this interview. And Excellent. you are from the main development team that works with the Internet Archive to, to make this handheld 
uh, history collection come to life. So what I'd love to hear first is just how did you become a part of the MAME development team? How'd you get into this? Well, back in 2002, 2003, I was just a high school student, um, and I was just sort of getting my feet wet in C++ programming. Well, C programming at the time. And uh, I had been an avid emulation fan since like age 13 or so. And I kind of said to myself, well, now that I'm learning how to code, I might as well actually start putting those coding skills to good use. And so this one MAME developer by the nickname of R. Belmont sort of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, so to speak, and helped get me contributing actively to MAME. So for the past 15 or 16 years or so, I've been a contributor to MAME. Very interesting. So how, how does the handheld history collection uh, come into that? Is that... Uh, Jason mentioned you buying uh, a lot of these these handheld games, and that kind of kind of started the whole thing. For well, I mean, th there were a number of games that had already been acquired and already been emulated prior to my coming on the scene as sort of a patron, so to speak. Um, I I just have to be clear in that I myself I am not really involved in emulating any of these handheld games. Or really, you know, any of, I'm not involved in the dumping, I'm not involved in the emulation. I'm literally just a facilitator, sort of, in terms of finances okay. and stuff like that. And um, I, said, I said to myself, well, here's this niche that really hasn't been explored by any other emulators uh, other than MAME uh, at the time. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, this is, you know, I have the cash to spare, so I might as well set about just trying to dump the, trying to acquire these games to be dumped. And so, <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of the extent of it, really. Totally. Well, how, when when you're making these, how, how did these games for the Handheld History Collection come to be? Because right now, uh, I believe there's around 60, to, or actually now 70, is what Jason said. Uh, how how were these the 70 that were, were chosen for this? Well, as far as I'm aware, most of the choosing is Jason's uh, business, but I believe that his criteria were uh, essentially revolved around what were the more memorable electronic games and what were the more noteworthy ones. For example, the Speak and Spell series, which practically every American grade schooler from the 80s is familiar with. Yeah, yeah, he was talking about, uh, you know, some some of that with Notable and some of it with also the games that were, were able to be recreated in a way that was uh, useful to people. Like, the, he talked specifically about a chicken game that doesn't really work if you don't have the physical chicken that also went along with the game. If you just have the, the game part of it itself, it's just kind of a tic-tac-toe game. But having exactly that, right so. exactly and um that's that's part of sort of the luxury that the internet archive has in that they are able to pick and choose what they want to sort of put up there and spend their bandwidth on whereas with regards to the MAME team we have this more broad attitude of literally everything is worth preserving whether it's 
some obscure title that nobody has ever heard of, or whether it's a massively popular handheld game like the Game & Watch series by Nintendo, mm-hmm. um, we sort of say everything is, well, literally everything is worth preserving. And that's not at all to detract from what the Internet Archive is doing in the sense that they are themselves archiving everything. It's just that they are selecting, they are picking and choosing which titles to have interactive on the Internet Archive site. Right. They have a different set of criteria for their curation than MAME does. Now, now with MAME though, I mean it's still it, there's there's too much stuff out there to be able to emulate all of it. So is is there still is there still some sort of way that you guys determine what the thing you go after next is? Like what is what is the value of these LCD handheld games that that made you and other members of the team go, "Okay, this is this is something that's worth our time to do." Well, part of it is the fact that value doesn't really even enter into the equation when it comes to preservation. I mean, there are a number of games that are preserved in MAME that have arguably zero value whatsoever. For example, uh, in the uh, version before the most recent version that came out uh, of MAME, there was this trivia game. And it had the most offensive, racist, sexist questions in this sort of quote-unquote joke uh, quiz game. And and just about anybody with any sort of head on their shoulders would say, well, this game is completely not worth buying, not worth playing, not worth even acknowledging. Yet the simple fact of the matter is that this game did come out. It was made by a company. It was sold. And therefore, that alone is the only criterion with which we determine whether something should be added to MAME or not. If it was commercially released, we will add it to MAME. And so one can argue that we're sort of, you know, uh, oh, what's the term? Uh, We're sort of going up against an unmountable mountain here, so to speak, where there are so many LCD handheld games and so many of these random quiz games and games of various sorts that uh, we'll probably never be able to achieve 100% coverage. But that in and of itself is not necessarily an argument to not try to do so. And so to that end, pretty much any game that we can get our hands on, we will try to emulate. Uh, Now, in terms of what has been emulated currently and what we're we have ongoing plans to emulate um sean riddle the guy who is doing the majority of the rom dumping uh and the acid decapsulation and things like that uh he has a setup that is geared towards a certain time frame of chips uh, for example, his microscopes, you know, they have a limited resolution, so the more finer detailed games that came out in, say, the mid-90s or the late-90s, they might not necessarily be able to be imaged by his setup. So we are intentionally avoiding those sorts of later games. But for things that were made in the late 70s, early 80s, mid-80s, late-80s, uh, all of those 
are actually viable emulation targets. And so really the only yay or nay criteria comes down to whether or not we can actually buy an instance of the handheld. Right. And and that does seem like that that kind of narrows the the games that are out there for now. I was talking to to Jason about this uh, 1987 Tiger Electronics pinball game that I had that uh, that is a, just a terrible version of pinball, but I, I loved it and I have this nostalgia for it and it's not up there yet. And I imagine the, the problem is either uh, you guys have it and haven't been able to emulate it yet or haven't gotten around to it, or you just don't have a copy of it. And in this case, it would most assuredly be the uh, latter rather than the former. Right. Because uh, one, one of the real beauties of this LCD handheld emulation is that the vast majority of these games are what are called mask ROMs. Like, the, these games were based around microcontrollers, usually 4-bits, sometimes 8-bit microcontrollers, uh, which had internal ROM, internal RAM, various peripheral uh, ports, and things like that. But by decapsulating these ROMs, or by decapsulating these chips using uh, fuming nitric acid, we can actually visibly, under a microscope, see the individual 0 and 1 bits of these games because they were because due to them being mask ROMs, uh, the ROM contents are literally a physical property of the chip. And so one of the really great things is that even if you have a faulty instance of a game, like let's say it doesn't power on or it plays wrong, well, if it plays wrong, that might be suspect. But you know if if there are control issues, if the LCD is bad, if it doesn't power on, all of that doesn't necessarily preclude it being successfully dumped and emulated in Maine, which I think is kind of one of the cool things yeah. in, involved in all of this. Uh, because you, know, you, you can literally take a non-functioning version of the game and still wind up being able to preserve a functional instance of it via MAME. So what is the difference between uh, between emulating a, a Tiger Electronics LCD game or any LCD game and, like, for instance, a Game Boy game or, or a Nintendo Entertainment System game? Because there is, there is more involved with this. I, I know uh, in the, the story that's on The Verge and that, that Jason wrote for the Internet Archive, he, he talks about how some of these games actually have to be completely dismantled so we can scan the backgrounds and so we can, uh, you, can you, you can actually look at the physical pieces of it. And, and that seems way more involved than, than taking a, a dump of the ROM of, a, of an NES game. Can you talk more about that? Well, sure. I mean, it, it absolutely is a much more involved process than, say, just dumping a NES cartridge or a Super Nintendo cartridge or any other cartridge-based console in the sense that, yes, we do need to capture individual images of each segment of the game lit up and dark in order to be able to vectorize those segments into an SVG, uh, scalable vector graphics. Uh, file, which can then be have each segment tagged with the appropriate output tag in order to work with MAME. So there is quite a bit more work involved just, just on that level. And in addition, 
there's the fact that an NES game or a Super Nintendo game or any other console game can typically be read just by plugging the cartridge into a cartridge copier. Whereas these games, the ROM is literally locked away, read-only, so to speak. Uh, not even read-only, just no external access to the actual contents of the ROM driving this microcontroller, which in turn drives the LCD and reads the inputs on the handheld and such. And so the only option is to take a physical instance of the game, cut away the chip that drives the whole thing, and then boil it in fuming nitric acid until the actual silicon dye itself is exposed, and then throw that under a microscope and take individual photos of the silicon chip itself under a microscope. And then from there, we can use computer vision to do things like automatically recover the majority of the bits, though a human being still needs to actually go through and verify each individual bit to make sure that nothing was wrong. So this is sounding and like so a real to that scientific end, process. Sorry? This is sounding like a real scientific process that you're you're putting chemicals on things and using microscopes and that just seems it seems kind of nuts to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean it it is totally nuts from from any logical standpoint. There's really no reason to be doing any of this other <laughs> than a pure passion for preserving history. And that is, in my opinion, one of the more amazing things about the uh, about the whole project, not just the handheld preservation project, but the MAME project in general. Because these techniques that are being applied to these handhelds, they were actually perfected on various other types of microcontrollers, which were used for things like copy protection on arcade games and things like that. So... To that end, the handheld preservation effort is very much benefiting from the from the time and effort and money and just everything spent on preserving arcade games. So there's this synergistic aspect to it that I really, really like. Yeah, that, that's I mean that's fascinating. Like part part of me is thinking, well, if it was easy to to uh, to emulate these games, it would have been done before <laughs> that. Like we exactly. we've done exactly. all the easy stuff at this point, and now we're we're on to the more difficult, demanding things to to make these work. Are are there any games from uh, just from a personal standpoint? Are there any games that you are uh, excited or have nostalgia for that are that are on the the handheld history collection, or or is just part of Mame? Oh man, I was hoping you would ask this. <laughs> Everybody Actually, has their favorite was, like couple of Tiger Electronics games, and I'm always fascinated to hear what people people remember. Well, back when I was seven or eight years old, I had this Tiger Tiny Toon Adventures game, okay. which I I still hold out hope that we will be able to emulate that in Mame. But that aside, uh, the thing that really just just makes me so very happy on a nostalgic standpoint is the electronic number muncher game that is currently <laughs> emulated by Mame, and it was essentially this big like it was a had to be like eight to ten inches wide by six to eight inches tall by a couple inches deep uh calculator with 
and it was just bright yellow plastic, and it had this big, big old uh, elephant molded into the plastic. And you could use it as both a calculator, but it also had a couple of mini games built into it. One of the mini games was you could catch coconuts that were thrown thrown by this monkey thing on an LCD. Like you were an elephant and you could move your trunk left and right in order to suck up the uh, coconuts. And then another one was you could also play various math games and determine you know, the sums and differences of addition and subtraction and so on. And in 1989, I was given one of these electronic number muncher games for Christmas. I was four years old at the time, and I absolutely adored the game. And as the years went by, I ended up getting rid of the game. And it wasn't until this past December when I happen to have more money than sense, so to speak. <laughs> and I, I was just sort of putting some of my extra funds towards acquiring games to dump. And I pointed out to Hap, uh, Mikael uh, is his real name, uh, the guy who's doing the all of the emulation side of this handheld preservation. Uh, I pointed out to him, hey, you know, it would be really cool if we could get a copy of this game dumped. And so he ended up going out and he ended up finding a copy of this game, this exact, the exact model that I had in 1989. <laughs> he found it on eBay for little more than $10. Ended up getting it shipped off to Sean Riddle, who's the guy who was doing all the dumping of these games. And Sean, within a few days, had it dumped. Hap ended up emulating it. And... So now I'm actually able to, at, at age 32, go back 28 years and re-experience this Christmas gift that was given to me. And it's just so incredibly amazing. And so I would say that is absolutely the pinnacle of retro nostalgia for me. Absolutely. I, I, I love these stories because they, they really... They they talk about why games are important and why, why these things matter and, and what we get out of them. And, and it really shows why archiving them is important. And I'm sure there are people out there who would try that for, for two minutes, maybe not even that long ago. Wow, this sucks. And, and maybe even you would go back and play it and goes, yeah, this, this isn't very fun anymore, but it still gives you those warm and fuzzies that, that they're out there, that, that it's there, that it's, it's, uh, tan, well, almost tangible in some way that it's, that it's still around and it'll still be remembered. Like one of the, while I was thinking about that, that 1987 pinball game, I, you know, went to YouTube and I can watch somebody review it and, and see somebody play it. And that's, that's not the same thing. I mean, it's a, it's a form of archiving in a way, but it's not, actually going back and and playing it and having my hands on the controller or having my hands on the buttons and and affecting the way it plays so you're getting a, a watered down experience at that point and and that's the wonderful thing about what what you and the main development team and and the internet archive are, are putting out there that these people that anybody can go and and be able to either remember these old games of their past or, or discover them for, for any sort of, uh, you know, research purposes that they might have. And, and it's just a really cool story. 
And I totally agree with that. I mean, for, from my perspective, a lot of a lot of what makes it worthwhile is not so much just not so much any individual game, but just the fact that we are preserving history. Is that long after all of these handheld games have rotted into dust, you know, you will no longer be able to get an actual physical functioning copy of the game. We are ensuring that people will still be able to experience the games as they were intended to be experienced, and not through not through projects that involve just simulating the games based on observed behavior, like for example Madrigal. And that's not to detract at all from the amount of effort that has gone into projects like Madrigal, but at the same time, you know something like MAME, you know, with these games being emulated completely dispassionately and 100% accurately, you know that you are getting now what people were able to experience 20, 30, even 40 years ago with some of the titles that are currently supported by MAME. Totally. It's an it's a incredibly cool thing. Well, Ryan, how, how can people uh, get involved with this if they're interested in MAME, uh, whether or not for the LCD handheld part of it? But, but if somebody's just interested in becoming part of the community, how, how is the best way to go about doing that? Well, it depends. There are a ton of different ways that people can potentially contribute. Uh, if it's a person who happens to have an undumped handheld, they should absolutely feel free to reach out to us and potentially be willing to contribute their handheld to the dumping. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. what's the term? Uh, the, the dumping effort. That's right. it. Yeah, they, Jason... they should absolutely feel free to contribute their handheld towards the dumping effort. Uh, meanwhile, if somebody happens to have a surplus of funds, then perhaps they could use those funds to acquire various uh, handhelds that are up for auction, which haven't been dumped yet. But in terms of people who have artistic ability, there's an opportunity there for people to revectorize the backgrounds and indeed the segments themselves of these LCD games, uh, such that we're not dealing with scans, but actual re-vectorized, uh, high-resolution recreations of the artwork, which would be amazing. And then if somebody is a coder, well, you know, in, as far as the main team is concerned, we're not going to turn away any sort of, any passionate coder who is sufficiently skilled. So... Uh, there are numerous ways that people can potentially contribute if they are willing. How how would those people get in touch? Is there a, a main forum that people are on? Was it uh, talking Absolutely. to you or other people on Twitter? Well, uh, there are multiple ways that people can get a hold of us. There is the MAME Dev forums on mamedev.org. And then there is also the MAME IRC-related chats on irc.freenode.net uh, via the Internet Relay Chat Protocol, IRC, mm -hmm. as it's called. Um, and that would be hashtag MAME or hashtag MAME hyphen dev uh, for anybody who's interested in joining up in the chat. And then there's the, there, are the, there are various tangential, 
uh, sorry, there are various tangential sites, for example, the Bannister Forums, uh, that would be forums.bannister.org, B-A-N-N-I-S-T-E-R.org, uh, though you do have to jump through a few hoops in order to register your uh, username, just because spam has been a bit of a problem on those forums. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are various ways in which people can reach out if they wish. Well, fantastic. Uh, how about how about your Twitter? Do you want to do any self-promotion? Anything else that you have that people should know about? Well, I mean, my my Twitter account is the Mog Miner at well at the Mog Miner on Twitter, and I, I mean, I'm on the autism spectrum, so <laughs> you know, it's kind of a grab bag of random stuff. Uh, on any given day as to what I'm tweeting about, but people should absolutely feel free to send me a DM. I have open DMs if they are interested in contributing in any way. I mean, I can absolutely direct them in the appropriate direction All right, well, as fan- needed. Fantastic. Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on here. Uh, I, it's When I read that article uh, first on The Verge and then reading through uh, Jason's more in-depth blog post, I it just it brought this this warm rush of nostalgia to me, and I, I'm sure a lot of other people are going to feel the exact same way when they're able to to play these games and and, and have that that part of their life come rushing back. So so thank you very much for uh, for your service in a way. Chase, I want to thank you so much for actually reaching out and interviewing both Jason and myself. And if I may, I would just like to give a shout out to Hap. Uh, Mikael, uh, the Dutch MAME developer who is doing all of the coding work on these handouts, and also Sean Riddle out in Oklahoma who is doing all of the physical effort in dumping all these games. And they are really the unsung heroes of all of this, even though people like Jason and myself are sort of the visible face of the project. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, those, those guys... Those guys are doing the Lord's work. <laughs> so thank, thank you thank you for coming on, and uh, hopefully I'll get to talk to you again soon. Sounds good, man. And that's our show. I want to thank both Jason and Ryan for coming on and, and being such great interviewees. Uh, I learned a hell of a lot about LCD games and Tiger Electronics and how, how these things work and, and how you are able to bring them to a computer. That, that stuff is just... It's crazy to me. It's, it's, it's magic, but now the magic is explained. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Gamers on the Go. I believe we're going to be talking to Matt Jaguar again about uh, PAX East that's coming up here very soon. So be on the lookout for that. And, of course, we will have more episodes in the future. So thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Master.